Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and today I'm joined by Zachary Carter, the author of The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes, published in May by Random House. For the past decade, Zach has been a senior politics and economics reporter at HuffPost, and before that he wrote for The Nation, Mother Jones, and The New Republic. He's a graduate in philosophy and politics from the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, where he began his reporting career covering the financial sector just before the last global crisis hit in 2008. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Can you begin by telling us more about your background and how you made the leap from a humanities degree in Charlottesville to the financial sector and then to Keynes? (laughs) Sure. Uh, It's been an unusual journey, I think. I I can admit that. Um, I... My first job out of college was a job uh, in Charlottesville at a place called SNL Financial, which is a trade publication covering the banking sector. Uh, it's now part of S&P Global. But uh, I, I wasn't terribly, to be perfectly honest, I was not terribly enthusiastic about taking a job covering banking. I wanted to be a writer uh, and uh, banking sounded like the most boring thing in the world to be to be covering for someone who wanted to be you know, this this person of letters. And uh, it was fortunate for me that the banking sector chose the 2006 to 2008 era to just <laughs> completely destroy itself. <laughs> so I, I sort of stumbled into banking reporting at a moment of intense upheaval. And what was happening in that moment of upheaval was a lot of, um, frankly, very thoughtful reconsideration, um, not only of policy uh, sort of tactics, but of, of economic ideas that were happening even within the financial sector, where people who had who had been advocating for you know talking about the virtues of rational free markets for for you know the, the early months and it really the, the banking sector broke down very quickly. So the early months of my career, people were talking about the virtues of rational free markets, uh, and and then they were set, they were talking about the, the important need for government rescues uh, yeah. shortly thereafter, and I, the. All of a sudden, this this fellow John Maynard Keynes, who I, I'd come across in um, econ classes, like basic econ classes, econ one hundred and one, not not sophisticated, higher level, you know, graduate school kind of stuff. Um, people were talking about his his ideas and his policies, so I I tried to read the general theory um, around this time, and the general theory is just not a particularly fun <laughs> book to read. It's it's Keynes's magnum opus. It's his it's his most important theoretical work. Um, but it's one of his worst works of 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 just like writing. It's just his prose is disgusting in this book. It's like it's like eating a pretzel covered in thorns. And he uh, and so I, I I sort of decamped to the the economic consequences of the peace, which of course is this this book that he writes after um, the the negotiations for the Treaty of Versailles, which ended the First World War. And and that seemed that was a little more digestible for me. And, uh, and it seemed to me that there was a lot more going on in this guy's mind than, than just 
you know, sort of debt and deficits. He was thinking about about geopolitical situations. He was thinking about morality and ethics. Uh, he seemed he seemed like the kind of thinker who I had studied as a philosophy student in college. Uh, and so I started approaching his works as a so, sort of from that perspective, from the perspective of a philosopher uh, and and just found him a totally fascinating person. I mean, he's he, despite the the drudgery of the general theory, when he is really on his game as a writer, there are few people uh, in any discipline who I think can compete with uh, the, the sort of flights that he takes uh, in, in his prose. Uh, and he's just he's just a, a remarkable thinker who had a lot to say about war, peace uh, and and the human condition. Yeah. I mean, do, do you think as a um, as a journalist, because I, I had a similar experience, actually, to uh, attempting to read the theory and then reading the economic consequences <laughs> of peace, because it was, you know, I, I like fly on the wall journalism. And there's quite a lot of that in there. You know, the, the, you, you get a lot of his uh, his 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 experiences of being in the great hall and so on. Um, mm. But were you surprised when you looked into his life? Uh, because I was, I, I have to, I should have known this, I guess, but I was surprised from reading your book um, just essentially that there was no economics discipline as such at the time. And he, he was a philosopher and he, he saw his role as a philosopher and his, the great work he was going to write was a work of philosophy. Did that, did that surprise you too? Yeah, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that there was no economics discipline, but I would say that it was radically different from what it has become over the course of the 20th and early 21st century. Uh, the The Cambridge, uh, you know, economics department as it existed when Keynes matriculated there in 1902, I believe, didn't didn't have an economics major. So Keynes, uh, you know, Keynes focused his his degree is in mathematics. Um, which is kind of ironic because he became someone who was very critical of the hyper mathematization of the economics discipline later on. Um, but you know, his his crowd at this time was the people who he associated with as an intellectual were people like Bertrand Russell and Ludwig Wittgenstein. Uh, they they were not uh, you know the people who we would associate with as like being graduates of uh, an American business school, which I, I I kind of think the economics profession has has become associated with. And I, I, I have to say, I was, I was surprised. Um, you know, the, the great thing about doing research and, <laughs> and working on a book for years at a time is that you get to learn new things um, and, and do it for a living. And I, I was just shocked. I was shocked at, uh, at how much he thought of himself as a philosopher. You know, his first big work is published in 1921, uh, he thinks it's his first big work. It's it's actually published after uh, after the economic consequences of the piece. But he's been working on this theory of probability for for something like uh, like a decade, and he thinks that this is going to be his major contribution to the history of ideas when he when he publishes it. And it's it's called a history a theory of probability, but it's really a theory of, of human rationality and of human action and of how we can make rational decisions when we don't know the future. We don't know what the future will bring. When we when our lives are dominated by what Keynes calls uncertainty, and uh, that idea I think is incredibly powerful, and it permeates all of his economic works, and and really makes him a unique thinker in the in the history of economics. Most economists today who still call themselves Keynesians don't generally, certainly in the United States, don't generally accept Keynes's ideas about uncertainty. They still sort of 
work within this framework of rational individuals making decisions to maximize um, their their profits. And I think Keynes, uh, because he was in many ways, he was very ignorant about the history of of economics because it didn't exist in in the UK at the time. Uh, there was a pretty serious discipline over in in Austria, uh, and he was not familiar with that school of thinking. Uh, and I think because he was hanging out with all these philosophers, he was capable of thinking outside uh, the sort of uh, confines of, of the typical model for, for economics. Yeah, and, and that's a point you make uh, quite consistently through the biographical part of the book. Um, and we'll come back to how you structured the book a bit a bit later. But the biographical part of the book, you you emphasize that while he was a brilliant man and, and quite a technician, he, he was essentially in a way, a romantic who wanted everyone to enjoy the good things in life that he enjoyed. And his, his economics was designed to achieve that for everybody. Do, is, mm-hmm. is that a fair summary of, uh, of how you were thinking about it? Yes. I, I think he's, I think he's, he's a, a deeply romantic person. And I think you can, um, I think that's true of much of the, the Bloomsbury set for, for all of their sort of, um, modernist sort of, uh, uh, cynicism is not right, but but they, there's a, there's a wryness to uh, to the Bloomsbury set. People like Lytton Strachey and and Virginia Woolf. Um, these these are people who genuinely love uh, you know the the emotional uh, high of of great art and uh, and of and of uh, frankly fine living, and they uh, they <laughs> they see themselves engaging in this work as as sort of a political act, certainly early in their lives. So they, they believe themselves to be breaking down the barriers between, uh, between peoples that have been built up, you know, over, over centuries of conflict and that, that by making great art, um, and expressing themselves fully and, and, uh, you know, living and loving it to, to the fullest, uh, you know, they can, they can bring peace and harmony to the world. And you know, that's a, that's a simplification, but but they really believe this at least up until World War One, the, the outbreak of World War One, and and Keynes is part of that milieu, and he he thinks that the ability to to write and to express yourself is uh, is ha- has incredibly powerful political potential, uh, and it's it's it becomes a conflict with him um, with with other other economic thinkers during the 1920s and 1930s when he really comes into his own as an economist um, because a lot of the people who are, who are in his sort of, I wouldn't say competitors, but people, people who are offering alternative ideas about how, how the economy should be structured are, are Marxists who don't think that the power of ideas has any truck, that it's the material conditions of society that will dictate things. And so Keynes's belief that you can persuade people through the written word uh, is something that really sustains him, and I think leads to his his great breakthroughs in in economic thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, it, anybody could see the appeal of why you'd want to write this life, but you must have been daunted by the books that have been written before you. I mean, there's the the multi volume biography from Robert Skidelsky, then there's policy studies that. You know Roy Harrod, Harvey mm-hmm. Minsky, Michael Stewart, and and even the recent one from um, Richard Davenport Hines, which is taken out the economics and, and really is is a is a sort of pure life. What 
gave you the confidence to think that you could, that there was a market for another one. And there does appear to have, you know, it has, it, it's been well-reviewed and it seems successful. What, what, what gave you the confidence to go for it? Well, I, I should make clear here that I have uh, great respect uh, both for uh, his lordship, uh, Robert Skidelsky, and for Richard Davenport Hines. When I was uh, in the archives at, uh, at, at King's College in Cambridge, I actually ran into Richard Davenport Hines, and he had this very nice, he was easily the best dressed man in, in, the, uh, in, in the arena. He, he had uh, this, this very nice flower in his lapel uh, and, and was clearly just really enjoying himself in, in the archives. So I'm sure he was looking at Kane's stuff too, uh, but uh, you know his his book is great. It's it's a, it's a really nice book. Uh, I, the Skidelsky books are are just gargantuan. You know they're they're uh, they're, they're a monument really. And uh, I talked with him uh, several times in, as I was working on this book. And I think Skidelsky in particular, you know, has a sort of framework for interpretation of Kane's um, that is is really like the foundation for how to understand his his thinking um so i have a great deal of respect for these men as as scholars um but i felt like certainly in the united states at least there is not an appreciation for keynes as a political thinker that uh, that he is understood as this sort of deficit therapist who uh, is you know concerned with technical questions rather than than big ideas and and I felt like there was an ability. There, there was a. a I, I hoped I had the ability, but I, I, I felt like there was there was room to talk about Keynes as this broader social thinker, particularly after the the collapse, the economic collapse of two thousand eight, which I had covered as a reporter. Because even when you would talk to people about about Keynes in in the you know in the financial markets at, at this period of time, they would talk about about him in terms of policy prescriptions. So they wouldn't talk about why. He had proposed these policy prescriptions and how his economic thinking was related to this broader set of, of philosophical principles that guided his, his thinking and his life. And I, I just I, I thought I could give it a go. You know, uh, my <laughs> I think any anybody who who thinks that they can sit down and write a 600 page book that will actually keep people's attention all the way through is guilty of a certain degree of arrogance. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I gave it my best, but you know, my, my wife also is a, she's an editor at the New York times and she just, um, she was working on a book of her own at the time on immigration policy, which actually I kind of coincidentally came out the same day that, that my book came out. And, uh, it, it just, it seemed like a fun thing that we could do together. We could, we could go and, and research these things, uh, you know, side by side in different archives and, um, and go on writing retreats together. It'd be a great way to spend vacations. And, and it turned out to be, we, we had a really great time. And I, I think her book is really fantastic. It's called One Mighty and Irresistible Tide. Uh, and uh, it's about U.S. immigration policy. But, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to feel confident about yourself when your wife is telling you, you know, you can do this all the time. Uh, and your wife is an editor at The New York Times. Uh, was she helping you edit as you went along? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and we, <laughs> we kind of edited each other. Uh, it was a, uh, a very collective, collaborative process, I, I would say. You know, the, 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 it's easy when you, when you have somebody whose life is as rich as Keynes's was to get lost in particular stories yeah. and details. So it, it's kind of this paradox I've noticed in journalism, too. Like the longer your piece is, the more stuff you leave 
on the mm-hmm. cutting room floor in the edit- editing process. And and my wife was very good at, at, at telling me, you know, look, this story is really, really great, but it is not related to the themes of your piece, of your book. You need, you need to, you need to let this one go. <laughs> well, and, and, and there are, and there are some good ones. I, mean, I particularly liked Virginia Wood, uh, Virginia Woolf, fainting when uh, she finds out that Keynes has turned to protectionism. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it tells you uh, how, how, how. I mean, that story because I talked about this with my wife, and she's like. She, the, her point was that this is not just about Virginia Woolf fainting. This is about how deep this idea of of free trade and internationalism is with these with this group of people, and how how morally significant they believe this uh, this this policy agenda to be. It's not just about maximizing GDP. It's not just about statistics. It's about a particular view of the world and of human liberation. And that is what <laughs> that's what makes her faint, right? Yes, exactly. And, and, and what a change from today. I mean, then to be to be radical was to, to favor free trade. Uh, now, I, uh, maybe after Trump, it's slightly different. But w- w- where do you think he would now be on the on the current debate over public debate over trade? I think it's very difficult because what we call free trade has changed over time significantly from from Keynes's day. Uh, it, it changed over the course of, of of Keynes's life. You know, in in when he was coming of age, of age as, as an economist, free trade meant obedience to the norms of the gold standard, um, which meant your currency had to be tied to a certain weight of gold, uh, and and of course we we haven't had that for for decades. Um, it has sort of come to mean since the 1990s a particular arranged political international political arrangement uh, in which governments agree not to regulate their their domestic economies in certain ways because this is considered uh, you know su- such regulations are considered violations of the the free trade ideal they're sort of like secret tariffs that if you if you regulate the environment in this particular way uh, that's that's sort of like favoring a domestic industry. Um, and I don't, I don't know how he would think about that. I, I, I think he would be very critical of the financialization of the global economy that's taken place since the 1970s, but particularly since the 1990s. I don't think he would like the type of uh, world order we have economically today. Um, but it's, it's very difficult to. Keynes was just a very creative person, and he was, he was very comfortable with changing his mind. So yes. he could he could say, well, you know, I was committed to this idea for ten years, but you know, it looks like the gold standard's not working. So let's throw it out and try something different. I mean, when when he embraced a tariff in 1931, he was throwing out you know his entire <laughs> his entire worldview essentially. Um, he he was also somebody who was uh, tried to be aware of political realities. He often was just not very good at navigating um, political realities, particularly in the United States. But he tried to 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 sort of tune his policy uh, recommendations to the political constraints of, of his day. I think today he would look at, for instance, the deterioration of the European Union as uh, as a terrible a, a terrible calamity. Um, I think he would be very very committed to the idea of Europe as a as a united and harmonious whole. Um, but I think he would be very he would have been very very critical about the way. Uh, the EU handled the financial crisis of 2008 that that sort of extended for another decade through all of all of those austerity policies. Uh, I think he would be very troubled by the deterioration of the relationship between the United States and China, 
But I think he also would say that the relationship between the United States and China is not a healthy one. It's it's leading to uh, social social breakdown in the United States, and it's uh, it's empowering a government in China that I I don't think Keynes would have approved of. So uh, he would he would have come up with some brilliant policy uh, plan uh, that would probably have been too ambitious to be taken seriously politically by world powers, uh, but that would be designed to uh, to to get countries to continue to interact with each other, to trade in ideas and culture, um, but to protect their citizens from the sort of swings of the financial market. That, that if, if, if things did not, if you had, say, a pandemic <laughs> that arose and caused devastating harm to the global economy, uh, people wouldn't be just sort of left out on, on their own and forced to fend for themselves on the streets. Um, it, he was uh, he was extremely creative, so I, I hesitate to say what exactly he would have done, but he would have looked at the problems of the day, figured out what was needed to solve the social problem, and then sort of reversed engineered the uh, the economic policy solution um, from that set of pop, from that set of, uh, of of needed social reforms. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, if we can, if you look at the speed at which governments and central banks everywhere reacted to the to the pandemic i mean it, it does imply that the um his his broad macro views are are pretty much universally shared now even if there are different as, as you talk about the difference between sort of left and right keynesianism after after his death there are still those differences but the but the broad um the broad view seems to be commonly shared now I, I think that's right. I mean, you can even see in the European Union, which was very um, prone towards a, 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 a to, to austerity, at least the leaders the, the, who had actual power in the EU after the 2008 crash, uh, you know, they're talking about significant fiscal expenditures by, by governments now. The question is what you spend it on and, and how you coordinate that spending among your allies. And that is, uh, that is a, a political issue. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's not just about making GDP uh, get back to where it was in February. It, it's it's about what kind of society you want to live in, and I think um, I think that that aspect of Keynes's thought is 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 lost in his in the fact that he's remembered as an economist rather than a than a philosopher. If he if he had been remembered as a philosopher and had his legacy taken up by the the philosophy profession, for instance, I think he'd have a uh, we, we would just think much much differently about the word Keynesian than we do. Mm. Yeah, and actually, this brings us back to the way the book is structured, which is very interesting. Uh, I mean, when I opened it, I was expecting a biography, and basically, it's two thirds a biography, um, and then mm-hmm. becomes a his a short history of the thinking. Some of it clearly, in your view, wrongheaded thinking behind post-war economic policy making, particularly in the United States. And you use the development of Keynes's thoughts as a as a hook into that. I, I guess what I'm asking is, did you finish the same book you started? Is, is that what you envisaged <laughs> when you began? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, look, this was very controversial when I was um, pitching the book to publishers. That you know, uh, it books books done just just fine. So I, I I don't have a whole lot of complaints about the uh, the process so far. But there were a lot of publishers who looked at this and said, well, why why does this uh, book continue after he dies? And, and I, 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 I guess I couldn't persuade them. Uh, fortunately, I was able to persuade Random House. But the, 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 the thinking that, that I was looking at, you know, the, 
Keynes is relevant not only because of what he did during his lifetime, but because of the way he became this sort of symbol for policymaking legitimacy after his death. If you go through his life, he loses almost every single policy battle of significance that he engages himself in from World War I until World War II. That is a lot of defeats. And so we would not write... Uh, in a hundred years, I don't mean this as an insult to to Jack Lew uh, or 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 other uh, Treasury officials in the United States, but you know you wouldn't see somebody who um, who was just a, he, he would you wouldn't see us writing a a, not, a a biography of Jack Lew in the future. He was a Treasury Secretary for the United States under under um, President Barack Obama. Um, he's just a you know a. a, a a competent bureaucrat, essentially. Uh, and Keynes was not a competent bureaucrat for a lot of his <laughs> life. He was very bad at getting things done that he wanted to see happen. Um, but after the war, he becomes this intellectual figure um, who is used to justify a significant change in the way the United States in particular makes policy, uh, but also also in uh, in the UK. And not- notably, uh, during during the war, he becomes the, the sort of financial architect of the beverage plan. So the National Health Service, um, the the modern British welfare state, uh, he's involved in in all of that. And that that's uh, policy making where he's working with the, the the very openly socialist Labour Party at the time. And uh, Keynes, I don't think, could have imagined himself working with uh, with socialists in the early 1920s, for instance. So. I certainly don't think that most Americans who encounter Keynes in an Econ 101 course at a, at a university um, would think of him as the guy who who helped socialize British medicine, for instance. So yeah. uh, I, I just felt like if you didn't tell the story of what happened to his ideas after his death, you were missing the reason that his life, as extraordinary as it was on its own terms, but you're missing the reason why uh, that life became uh, a, a matter of symbolic importance to policymaking after afterwards. You know, Keynes didn't invent the idea of deficit spending during the Great Depression. It was already happening in a lot of countries. But what Keynes did was create intellectual legitimacy for it. So the Roosevelt administration in the United States could say, well, look, there's this great, brilliant British economist who says this is the thing to do, so we should do it. Uh, and that's what people did you know, for, for the 1950s, 60s, and even into the early 1970s. Uh, and I think his, if you don't cover that ground and co- and explain how these, how his, he, he is used as a, a, a political figure um, for different people, both as a hero and a villain on different sides, um, then you're missing, you're missing the significance of his life. Yeah. And, and, in, and in the final third, you make, you you almost do the same thing with uh, J.K. Galbraith. You use him as a, a sort of cipher for the for the history you want to write. Was that was that your journalist knows that it's easier to write about theory through people, or or was Galbraith as important as 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 that? Well, in the United States, he was extremely important in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties. Uh, people forget that you know. The, probably the most famous American intellectual of this period was John Kenneth Galbraith. The Affluent Society was an enormously successful book published in 1958. Uh, he was sort of seen as as the guy who you would talk to if, if you were a, a, a person in 
just just an ordinary you know kind of person on the street in the United States. He was the guy who you would think of as an economist when you when someone talked about economics. Um, and the fact that he was sort of thrown out of the the sort of circle of seriousness in the 1990s, I, I think uh, shows how much the profession had had changed. He was really uh, an important figure during during his time, but. I, you know, I didn't know that when I started doing the research for this book. I, I was going to talk about Keynes uh, and his legacy, but the the decision to to cover Galbraith, honestly, it was a um, it was kind of a chance encounter. Uh, my wife was going up to the the JFK Library in uh, in Boston to do some some research for her book on immigration policy. Kennedy's a very important figure in the history of U.S. immigration law, uh, and I just said, okay, well, I'll go. And uh, and I'll I'll look into Galbraith's papers while we're there. I was looking into the papers of all these different economists from the period, and it it just seemed to me as I started going through his material that he was this this was a guy who really understood who thought of himself as a social thinker much the way Keynes did, who thought of himself as a political figure much the way Keynes did, and who also operated as a as a theorist, um, you know, a high fancy you know e- economist you know monetary theorist, but also as, as a public communicator, the way Keynes did, and also as a statesman, the way Keynes did. So I, I, I found the parallels between their, their lives quite striking. And, and it's not an accident. Galbraith very clearly tried to model his career on, on Keynes. Um, neither of them were modest men. I, I don't think you can be a very <laughs> modest person to, to say, well, I'll, I'll try to be the next John Maynard Keynes. Um, but, uh, but you know the the great thing about doing research is you have these you have these happy accidents where you find something and that's that's what it's going to be. Uh, I wish I could tell you that I had it, I had it all planned out to work out that way, but but I didn't, uh, and and I was very very pleased when I discovered his all of his letters and uh, and, and and works and magazine articles that are uh, up up there in the archives at uh, the JFK Library. I mean, it it is a nice parallel. I I had no idea that he he was effectively acting like a chief economist to the government while he was ambassador to India. And, and, you know, the way you write about Keynes as well, his his status at the Treasury, even as a very young man, and his, the way he comes in and out of government, it's, it's, it's like, I don't know if you know the Sherlock Holmes stories, but it's like the Mycroft Holmes character. <laughs> yes. great, great brain um, operating. And, and it's a... It's, do you think, do we have anybody like that now? It's hard to imagine anybody with that kind of breadth... I, you know, I think um, I, I think particularly with his latest book, um, uh, the French economist Thomas Piketty's work on yeah. capital in the twenty first century has um, has that social dimension. He's he's thinking about economics and politics and geopolitics in that that kind of um, in, in sort of the grand sweep that that Keynes and Galbraith did. Uh, but other than that, you know, I think I think the economics profession has largely uh, intentionally tried to um, hive off all of all of these elements from itself and, and to think of itself as a, as a hard science, a lot like physics, um, that is just about the data and the numbers and the facts and not so much about moral values and moral choices. And uh, you know, it's, it's easy to understand why you would you would do this if if you want to be able to provide solid, uh, you know, unbiased advice. Um, you want to, you want to think of yourself as, as something that's, uh, that's morally neutral. That's just, this is just, I'm just giving you the facts and, and you, you policymakers can decide how to, 
how to interpret those facts. But, you know, we know that when we look at different economists, that we're looking at liberal economists or conservative economists or neoliberal economists or leftist economists. Uh, it's not hard to figure out where the sort of political commitments of, of these folks are. And I think increasingly, uh, people don't really care what the political commitments of these people are. They they try to uh, they try to decipher the the seriousness of their uh, th- their work, but the the idea that you're going to that an economist is just an economist and is some sort of you know unthinking monad. I don't know if folks are familiar with uh, with <laughs> the philosophy of Leibniz, but <laughs> but, I, but, I, they, they, but they have no attachments or political beliefs aside from from data. You know, it's a little bit silly. And, uh, and, and I don't think people believe it now, and, uh, and I don't think they need to. I, I think it's important to make arguments for the, the type of world you want to live in. That's, uh, that's, that's just as legitimate as an argument about GDP. Yeah. Is that – because I was, I was struck that while you um, just discussed in quite some detail the neo-Keynesian development of his thinking, especially Samuelson and Hicks, for example, mm-hmm. you – didn't touch on new Keynesian issues like imperfect competition, wage stickiness, and so on. Is that because you considered that to be part of that kind of economics you're talking about, non non policy oriented, scientific? Was there, what was the reason that you left them out? Really? Well, I, you know, I think wage stickiness and 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 all of that is is sort of implicit in the the kind of Hicks Hansen interpretation yeah. of of Keynes, um, that, you know, the, the reason that you have, uh, a, a need for these, these macroeconomic in- interventions are because you know, wages are sticky and they don't adjust as quickly as, as other things. Um, you know, I, Keynes, I don't think would have, you know, it's tricky because there, there are, there are many different Keynes he changes his mind quite a bit as, as we've discussed already. Um, but, but Keynes viewed this as a very deep theoretical issue. It wasn't just sort of a, Oh, I guess wages are sticky kind of thing. He was talking, he was, he would say, okay, well, look, this is because of uncertainty. This is because we don't have, uh, uh, you know, a, a good model in the economics profession for the way people actually think about the world around them, whether they're consumers or, or producers or, or investors. And, and until we have a better model for, for that, uh, we're going to get the wrong answers from, from this, uh, this framework. So I, I felt like in the book, the focus on uncertainty was a way of, of getting at that broad theme um, without getting too deep into the weeds. I mean, I, you know, you, you have to get into the weeds with a guy like Keynes um, because <laughs> he's, he's a very weedy guy. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, the, the, the important, the important thing I, I think for most of his life was the, the, the big social and political picture. He was, he was worried about war and peace um, yeah. he wasn't worried about wage stickiness and he would not have wanted to be remembered as a, as a deficit ther- therapist for sure, but certainly not as, as a guy who was, you know, uh, had, had the best theory of how wages behave under, uh, in, in a depression. Yeah. Well, uh, before we finish, um, the book has been well received. Uh, do you have another one underway or formulating in your head? I do. Uh, I have to. Uh, I have to refrain from um, <laughs> from disclosing it, though. I mean, we we've finished negotiations and everything, so there's a publisher and everything. But they have a particular announcement uh, plan they want to 
abide by and I've contractually bound to respect it, but there, there will be another book. Uh, and, and I hope it will be good. Okay. And do you have a time frame around that? I don't, you know, I, a lot of it depends on the pandemic because it's, it's yeah. difficult to go and, and conduct the research you need to do for these things. For, for the Keynes book, I went to four different uh, presidential libraries in the United States. I went to Cambridge and King's college and just spent a lot of time in the archives and, uh, indoor spaces like that, they're, they're usually pretty confined, are not terribly safe at the moment. So uh, it really depends on how, how quickly I'll be able to get to the Library of Congress and uh, the University of North Carolina. I'll, I'll give you some, <laughs> some, some crumbs to try to work out <laughs> from there. <laughs> okay. Well, to remind listeners, we've been discussing The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes by Zachary D. Carter, published by Random House. Thank you very much for joining us, Zach. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the discussion.